Hey there, Dragonfly Nation. Caleb coming to you with a really cool offer from my dear friend Chris Gilmore from Chris Outdoors. When you first get started exploring the outdoors, whether it be through hunting, camping, or survival skills, it can all get a little bit mm, daunting and maybe even overwhelming in regards to how much there is to learn. Having a solid foundation in tracking and naturalist skills can help open the door to bushcraft and make you learn much faster. It can also just make things outdoors that much for, uh, that much more fun and exciting. What bird made that call? What animal does that track belong to? What do those clouds mean in regards to the incoming weather? Nature awareness is a skill set that is transferable to all aspects of bushcraft and beyond. Whether you are a hunter, a trapper, an angler, a survivalist, a paddler, or a hiker, this skill set can help make you safer and make your experiences that much more enjoyable. Chris has taught literally thousands of people how to read sign, whether it be through tracks, bird language, or the environment itself. And with his new online learning course, Reading Nature's Language, he can help you take your skills to the next level. Even though it is based online, you will have access to tons of practical activities and challenges that will make you the woodland Jedi you always wanted to be. Check out the trailer and more details at www.learnnatureslanguage.com. And just to sweeten the deal for you, enter the promo code DRAGONFLY to get 25% off the course. Again, that is www.learnnatureslanguage.com with the promo code DRAGONFLY for 25% off. To know the landscape is to open up a door. Than you've ever felt before. We know that you will love this podcast. So shut your mouth and listen to Canadian Bushcraft. Hello, Dragonfly Nation. This is the Canadian Bushcraft Podcast with your host, Caleb Musgrave, and I'm joined with my co host, Rye the Adventure Guy Moffat. And our special guest, Nikki Satira, the director from Earth Path over in the Ottawa region. We are currently together, but separate. I am in the Peterborough region. Nikki is over in Eastern Ontario and Rye is over in the GTA, which is a bummer, of course. I would rather have them here around the table with me. But also, it's kind of a blessing because we're all three experiencing different migration routes. And we're in different areas right now during the spring migration. I'm actually between the two major uh, highways of birds in Ontario, the Presqu'ile kind of up towards James Bay route and the Great Lakes region route. And Ryan's a little closer to the Great Lakes region and Nikki is over on the eastern side, closer to the Quebec migration route as well. So it's really kind of cool to have all three of us while we're talking about spring birds in three different kind of areas where these can, birds can be seen and converging and migrating together to get up to their northern habitats for the summer. So I want to thank Nikki and Rye for joining me today. Hey, guys. Hey. Agliossi. <laughs> Nikki, was, Nikki was practicing her Red Wing Blackbird Latin name before this. And uh, we were like, is she trying to cast a spell? What is going on? What's going on right now? But uh, they do now. <laughs> but yeah, we're now together, yet apart. And we're here to talk about the spring birds. We're here to talk about spring migration. Back about a month and a half ago, me and Nikki got together and we talked about uh, the winter birds. We talked about the birds that you most often will see in the wintertime and what they're up to and how they survive the winter. And now we've decided to get back together. We didn't have a chance to sit down and actually go over the D&D, 
you know. Oh, no. I know. I, it just dawned on me before we started oh, the episode. No. We were going to have our patrons help us vote on and decide which birds are of what uh, uh, alignment, but we never got around to that. So the bird nerd situation is not a complete. This is going to be an ongoing thing, I think. Yeah. But uh, yeah, we're going to get into that very soon. But today we're going to be talking mostly about the migration routes. We're going to be talking about the birds that are migrating, the songbirds, the big birds, the shorebirds and such. And we're also going to be talking about some ethics about bird watching, some techniques for bird watching, some, some technologies for bird watching, as well as uh, basically just some cool factoids about a bunch of these birds and why this is a really kind of cool time of year. Like I've been out in the sugar bush for two weeks now, gathering sap, trying to get the camp ready for sugaring. And while I was out there, I've seen massive flocks of Canada geese, like 1,200, 1,500 birds flying overhead. I've seen tundra swans. I've seen trumpeter swans. I've seen sandhill cranes. I've seen a lot of birds, but I'm also starting to finally notice the smaller birds showing up. The chickadees are getting chased back. The ravens are getting pushed back into the north while the crows take over again. And we're seeing more and more bird activity as the days go. It just gets becomes more and more. And just three days ago, I finally, finally heard a red-winged blackbird. So we are here and we're going to be talking about these beautiful birds that are coming back, our feathered friends. And on that, I want to start off, we're going to start about the migrations. Uh, Nikki, did you want to help me with this part? Or you want me to just dive into it? You dive in. <laughs> I remember how I said, I would say one sentence about migration. They migrate. Ooh. <laughs> knowledge birds drops. migrate it's true all it's different true. birds have different places they migrate to all different birds have different schedules all different birds have different routes and we're done have a good night folks yeah <laughs> no no so every single bird there is that, that that's out there that migrates and most birds migrate not all of them not necessarily you're not gonna see a lot of rough grouse migrations you're not gonna see a lot of ptarmigan migrations not a lot of turkey migrations but you're gonna see a lot of the songbirds the passerines you're also gonna see a lot of the bigger birds that require open water or require uh, fresh food all the time so the ospreys they usually go out to the east coast usually towards the southeast they go down towards pennsylvania and such Though I've also seen some migration routes of ospreys from this area going all the way up to Gaspé in Quebec. Uh, there's also the routes, of course, of the loons, the cranes, the herons, and all those beautiful birds. And the regions that these birds travel, they follow fairly similar paths every year. It's not like some people think like it's a reptilian brain thing where they just know every year which way to go every single time. I've seen birds change their migration pattern. It, it's not something that's unheard of. It's not something shocking it's, it's actually mm -hmm. pretty common that birds don't always follow the same route, especially if they're getting pressured by hunters or they're getting pressured by other things like habitat loss or habitat shifts. And food uh, availability, food like availability. all of that changes when and where birds migrate to. Mm -hmm. And some birds have a very fast migration. We were talking mm -hmm. about the stellar sea eagle and how fast, like they, they literally just beat their wings two times per kilometer. But with other birds, there's even like this crazy aspect, like the Canada goose can travel from its winter migration point or its wintering grounds to its summer grounds in a single day, very easily. They don't have to travel uh, over several weeks. They, we make it the, the great migration and we make it sound like it takes them months to get from you know, Hudson Bay all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico or down to Argentina or whatnot. 
And that's just not the case. A lot of birds can make it from James Bay to New York in 12 hours or less in some cases. And so there's a lot of migration that's fast. It can be just done in a single day and they're, and they're home, they're home again, home again. So these routes that we're talking about, these highways, they're more about the frequency. These are more likely where you're going to see birds. A great example of when they cha change their route is this past year, I was out, uh, I was called by my, my wife, actually. She's like, hey, there's some white geese in with the Canada geese mm -hmm. over on uh, Television Road and up near Peterborough. So I jumped in the car, met up uh, with them. And sure enough, there was six or seven snow geese in a flock of Canada geese, there was 1200 or sorry, 2,300 uh, Canada geese and like five or six, maybe seven snow geese. They change their migration routes. It's very common, but those routes are still fairly solid in where they're going to be. Uh, a great example of how frequent these places are, how steady these places are to go and look for birds on these migration routes is Presqu'il. Presqu'il uh, Park holds that there uh, states that 81% of all shoreline birds in North America, of all species, 81% of them, of all shoreline birds. So grebes, uh, the wader, all the types of wading birds, your rails, all those kinds of shoreline birds, you see gulls, terns, etc. They're all, 81% of those species visit Presqu'il at some point throughout the year. So if you're looking for shoreline birds, if you're looking for your waders, your, uh, your, uh, your dabbling ducks, your uh, deep lake ducks, or your diver ducks, they're all going to be right there at Presqu'il. So this is clearly a good place to go and see birds. Uh, Pelee Island is the southernmost part of Ontario, uh, or Point Pelee, sorry. And uh, Pelee is another location where you can see a lot of migration. You can see a lot of birds traveling from their summer grounds to their winter grounds and vice versa, their winter it's grounds. It's literally to their the grounds. best. It's incredible. Point Pelee is incredible. I saw, kid you not, a cerulean warbler there. Uh huh? Yep. Tell me more. It was, <laughs> it was like two years ago. I was at the uh, Point Pelee Bird Observ Observatory and there was a, they were like, we spotted, my friend actually works there. And he was like, we spotted a cerulean warbler that morning. So I drove over to go back and then they ended up catching it in one of the nets and then we got to go take them from the nets and i got to see up close this really warbler and if you don't know a lot about birds really warblers are like uh lifer birds for a lot of people they're very rare to see yeah and so these locations as well as uh if you check out like the nature conservancy of canada uh, Ontario parks, they all have like, they're talked with IBAs, the uh, international bird areas or uh, frequent bird areas. Uh, and oddly enough, a lot of provincial parks in Ontario line up with these migration routes really well. And at certain points of the year, you can see a lot of birds in one park. Of course, Presqu'il being a park kind of helps with that. But then you go up towards Algonquin, you go over to Killarney, uh, Agawa, all these areas have some really good times of year where you can just see a lot of birds. For us around where I am, being in the Peterborough area, Presqu'il is probably the, the best for us. Peely, of course, is a great spot, as you were just talking about, but it's a lot further of a drive for someone over here than it would be over somewhere down towards Peely. And if you're they, in Toronto, the Leslie Street Spit. Yes, I was just about to talk about that. My wife used to work there uh, for about two years. She worked at the Leslie Street Spit at Tommy Thompson Provincial Park, uh, or Tommy Thompson Park, not Tommy Thompson Provincial Park. Um, 
and it's a man-made island it's just a bunch of garbage from the bottom of the lake dredged out of the harbor and suddenly a bunch of cottonwood started growing there and so they started leaving certain parts of the property alone to let that cottonwood stand because cottonwoods are actually very rare in Ontario they're not doing very well in Ontario and so they were leaving them alone and then suddenly cormorants showed up trumpeter swans showed up uh sandhill cranes showed up great blue herons showed up all these shoreline birds showed up because it's the furthest south you can get in the Toronto area because it's straight out into into Lake Ontario so it's a very cool spot I think it's uh, between 65 and 6,700 cormorants are there in that one flock. Like thousands of cormorants are in that one flock, double-crested cormorant. That's wild. Yeah, it's, in, it's insane. And they've trained, I think, 60% of the flock now nests on shore instead of up in the trees. Because that's, that's like the biggest confusion that's happened over the years is cormorants aren't actually really supposed to nest in trees. But when we reintroduce them into Ontario they saw other birds that did the same stuff like them, like herons nesting in trees up in their rookeries. And so the cormorants are building nests up in the trees, whereas they actually are better at nesting right on the rocks. And that actually doesn't affect the ecosystem at a fraction of what it does when they nest up in the trees. So yeah, it was pretty cool to see that they got 60% of their, of their cormorants are nesting on rock again on the shoreline, just by harassing them in the trees with fireworks and firecrackers and putting, uh, decoys down on the shoreline yeah people are a little upset right now because apparently there's a production going on on the leslie street spit with like jason momoa i think for like itunes tv so they have like okay. a post-apocalyptic shanty town down there and they're worried about the effects on the local wildlife there and the migrating wildlife hmm yeah that makes some sense it's, it's kind of a bummer because that's I'm sure if Jason was aware of that being an important spot like that, he probably wouldn't have done it because he seems to be a pretty upstanding guy on all that, a lot of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But uh, not like I've met him or anything like that. But anyways, um, <laughs> it's it's a very common like challenge. Is like we have human life and then we have wildlife, and we seem to think that they have to be completely separate and we have to hide from each other and avoid them. And it's to a degree like with migrate with migratory birds, especially nesting birds, in those really sensitive moments you can drive them away. We used to have a beautiful pair of trumpeter swans nesting on the back end of our camp. And because we had the camp there frequently that they started nesting about a kilometer and a half away. They, they left the area because they didn't feel safe in that spot anymore after like five or six years of them interrupting, being interrupted by us being around. And so we, when we realized what we were doing, we stopped setting up camps that time of year when they were building their nests and getting their eggs laid. So we're starting to see them back again around the camp. It just took that like five years of us being dumbasses and not being aware until we figured out that we were actually scaring them away. And now they're back. So yeah, there's a lot of going on when it comes down to like migration routes and we got that stuff figured out. There's a lot of other things you can be researching. There's places you can go online where you can just type in like uh, like my region, where to find birds. And there's also just maps of migration routes or what they call bird highways that you can find out where they, where do they cross over your area and where, when's the best time of year to go to those spots. Beyond that, really the main thing I want to make sure that we get covered before we dive into a lot of like just cool factoids about all these different birds that are moving right now is the ethics and rye has uh, some really good insights to bring up so rye would you mind uh, talking to us about 
bird uh, bird watching ethics and bird watching techniques and such? Well, <clears throat> a lot of mine kind of contact a whole social media explosion over the years. And it can even be applied and transferred over to just your everyday wildlife viewing, which some people go that extra mile just to see an animal and get that perfect picture of an animal. So it's, you want to kind of leave no trace when you go to these areas and don't insert yourself too much and mess with their daily routines and their life. Cause like, like there's a conservation area near me called Lynch Shores Conservation Area just down the south of Whitby and there was a saw wet owl down there and I was just seeing tons of people taking photos it was almost like paparazzi style of going and seeing that so yeah it was people ending up harassing and then I saw that story about out west in Alberta, I believe it was, <clears throat> where the one owl had died because people, while it was sleeping, were shaking the tree, doing whatever they could just to get their Fair views shot. and getting the owl to open its eyes. So it's, those people are the worst. Yeah, they stand there like, oh, it's not opening its eyes or else they just get way too close for too long and they make it uncomfortable and make it leave or screw up its hunt by all their, it's sitting in a tree roosting, trying to mm -hmm. find prey. And they're all just down below gawking at it. So if you see it, go get your picture. Don't interfere with it. Don't try to stage your own situation and don't linger around too long. That's kind of a beef that I have with some like the whole conservation areas are an integral part of giving a habitat that's protected for these animals. But at the same time, like that one specifically is always packed, even though the parking fees pay for a lot of the upkeep of the area. It's still a lot of people all the time. They treat it like a wild zoo kind of thing almost. So go there be quiet don't disturb the wildlife as much as you can don't feed the wildlife unless they're just like some birds that always hang around your house and they're always used to getting bird feeders and seed but that's there's a lot of things like baiting and interfering with them and trying to get them into a certain spot that you like so i have mm -hmm. something to add too mm -hmm. go for it um so <laughs> We have like forward facing eyes as human beings, which means we are predators. Most predators have forward facing eyes and birds have eyes on the side of their head, which means they are prey. And I know this sounds like very simplistic, but it is true. And so often the practice I do when I am looking at birds and following birds and getting really creepy with birds because I love them so much and I just want to be close to them all the time. I look at them from my side eye in my peripherals and I and I move slowly do a little like fox kind of walk and I, I think it's really important not to stare at them like this I mean you can't see me because you are listening to this through a podcast she's, but they can looking, see me she's looking dead at me like a predator yeah and I'm scary I'm small but scary <laughs> I mean you're like a to solid a bird, owl like, to, to a, a bird, bird I'd yes, be to scary like yeah. <laughs> to, to me you're like a screech owl but whatever yeah <laughs> And there's, there's, there's a lot to be said about that, the harassment of wildlife 
one trick uh, one trick that i know a, a good friend of mine who's a guy that loves getting like the most epic bird shots he can on his camera is he made friends with falconers and he gets the birds to pose for him and he takes those shots and a lot of people are like that's cheating no that's good ethics mm-hmm. he's not harassing some poor owl that's trying to get from point a to point b and resting in the daytime he's he's not harassing goshawks when they're trying to catch their food he's not getting in the way of bird life and so yeah it's is it a wild bird no but does he have an epic an epic photo of a beautiful bird of prey yeah so at the end of the day who cares at the end of the day it really doesn't matter and it's a lot much more to me it's a lot more ethical than going out and going out of your way to harass some poor bird that's trying to rest um i yeah there i have a lot of issues with that kind of stuff where people just harass we had uh four snowy owls come down to rice lake two springs back and i had as soon as that got on the broadcast people start showing up in Hiawatha in droves. And I actually had to talk to like our local police and like, Hey, these guys are not supposed to be here. They're trespassing in a sense. And they're, they were just driving into people's driveways and walking down to the shoreline on property. That's trespassing to get shots of these snowy owls. And it's like, I get that because trust me, I was out there looking for the snowy owls too, but I wasn't on anybody's property. I was just driving down to the car dock to the boat launch and just scanning with my binoculars to see if I could see them. And when I finally spotted them, I was like, okay, cool. And then sure enough, the army of bird watchers with their giant cameras showed up. And I have a big problem. Like, first off, don't trespass. Don't step on people's properties if you don't have their permission to be there. Secondly, don't harass these poor birds. Don't do that. Don't become that asshole. But yeah, that's my own little rant. If you love birds, respect birds. Yeah. Yeah. That's why one of the other points that I had was... Even now on social media, I won't tag the specific location mm-hmm. as where I found it because I don't want people looking at that hashtag and immediately running to that location and getting any closer because it spreads like wildfire at that point. Mm-hmm. Once the first person I saw posted that photo of the Soweto owl, it was just instant. Every like five or 10 people from that area that I follow were instantly adding photos of it too. And you could, I could tell the animal was pissed off. It just had this look, it was just peering them down. It would just give them that side eye and be that, like, yeah, that get out of here. Look, get away from me. <laughs> they were ruffling some feathers. But I'm from Grimshot. But, but yeah, I'll, I'll go over a few other things. Just like Nikki said, just, don't make direct eye contact with them if you're trying to get close and approach them and don't just walk steady pace fast at them don't make any aggressive movements towards them so i'll add some of that later when i talk about some photography skills for doing this and as an aside as a bird watcher folks there's actually if you look at like the rules of bird watching which oddly enough there are there are actually like you have, by definition what is considered good bird watching their call is as valid as a physical image so if you hear the bird and you're able to discern what bird that is that is as good as seeing the bird with your own two eyes and a great example of that is when you hear an owl or a whippoorwill or you hear a ga- a, a red-tailed hawk you hear an osprey or sandhill crane that is as valid 
to any bird watcher, any true bird watcher will consider that as valid as seeing them with their own two eyes. So if you hear that bird, you don't have to go out of your way to try and find them. You don't have to go out there and chase them down. If you heard the bird and you can confirm that that is the call of that bird, you're good. You're, you're officially a bird watcher. You saw the bird. It's on your checklist now. (laughs) Speaking of which, I wanted to quickly touch on that because I feel like a lot of like birding culture has a lot to do with like seeing the bird. And I think there's a really big importance and value to more than just seeing and taking pictures of birds because they are so intricate and interesting. And like Caleb said, they're calls. They have so many different types of calls and you can get to know them that way and appreciate them in that way. Um, there's so much more to birds than just like looking at them and identifying them. And I often, when I'm teaching people, I say, well, when you, when you meet a plant, when you meet an animal or a bird, you get to know their name. And that's the, the learning journey is over at that point for most people. It's like, I got the name. I took a picture. I'm done. But if you were to meet me and you're like, I just met Nikki (laughs) and now I'm her best friend. I'd be like, no, you just know my name. You know nothing about me. And there's so much more to me than what meets the eye. So get to know birds on a deeper level. And because you know what, we're about to get into uh, different birds and cool facts about them. And I'm telling you, like I have three pages on of notes on red-winged blackbirds alone. And there's so much more (laughs) to red-winged blackbirds that I have to tell you. So there's just, yeah, I just get angry sometimes or worked up about um, that kind of culture of like seeing the bird. Now, you know it. And there's, and there's even more, like if you see there, if you see a bird nest, you can track the bird that way. If you see the birds feeding, like what they've ate, ate, like a a great example of the perfect example is woodpeckers. If you see a massive rectangular shaped hole in a tree, that is not a downy. That's not a hairy. It's definitely not a, a flicker. That is a pileated woodpecker. If you see that massive, like, I mean, the size of your forearm or, or more hole, that is made by the largest woodpecker, uh, member of the woodpecker family we have in Canada. And that's the pileated. If you see acorn shells driven into stumps and pecked out, that is probably a downy or a hairy woodpecker, potentially even a, uh, a pileated. If you see nests, you can identify birds by their nests. So if you see a nest up in a tree, you can go into your field guides and identify the birds by their nests. And that's a great way to do low impact bird watching. Heck yeah. Yeah. So on that, is there more we want to talk about with the techniques and the, the ethics? Let's dive into more techniques. Oh, we're talking about still about photography and all that. Yeah, yeah. Let's dive into that. So okay, let's, let's do that. Okay. We might as well cover as much of the like the, the nitty gritty details and then get into the fun. Like, well, this is fun. The fun. <laughs> <laughs> this is the fun stuff. Yeah. But I mean, like the 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 light. Like, did you know the factoid moments? The get factoid into kind of the the rest of the three hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Our last bird episode was three hours and fourteen minutes. <laughs> I we're already like 25, 30 minutes into this, and I'm like, oh god, when is this one going to end? Not in a bad way, just like this is. I'm curious, are we gonna do like is this gonna become our marathon episode or not? Yeah, so for photography, I'm not gonna come out here and be a salesman for Nikon or Canon or Sony or any of those Pentax. I'm just gonna the best camera you have is the one that's with you at this at any given moment, 
don't have to go and drop 5,000 on a body, 10,000 on the perfect piece of glass to capture it. You'll, that's how you'll get those National Geographic level shots, but it's not always integral to have that sort of thing. You can take it with a cell phone, and especially with these days, the technology is getting a little better. You can have stuff like Caleb, I think, has the Huawei P30 Pro or yep. just the P30. And yep. even those things zoom in so far. That's the biggest thing is having the zoom in capabilities and the telephoto technology that you can get nice and close without being right on top of it. That's the problem with a lot of the, you can get your cell phone camera shots and that's perfectly good for most people. They can prove it to their buddy that they saw this certain bird along there but it's not a huge need especially if you're just amateur just doing it for the love of the game and going out there to see something and in the moment you might be able to catch a picture of something or else you might work your way up and turn it into a hobby and then you can start investing in gear for cameras and that sort of thing and you can get yourself a dslr you can get a mirrorless camera DSLR is mostly our crop sensor, which will kind of cut out more and even zoom in a little more already. Whereas a mirrorless will be without all that system and not do that. But there's people who are on either side of the fence with one or the other of which one they prefer. I'd say for lens wise, you want to start off with something at least starting around a 300 millimeter lens. So you get those telephoto lenses, the big longer ones, and you can work your way up to the big expensive ones, like I said, that were ten to $12,000, where it looks like someone has a telescope on the end of their camera. And that's how you get those really up close shots, even if you're like 100 yards away from the subject. But starting with a modest 300 millimeter lens with something with a good frame rate and everything like that is all you really need. If you're just especially starting off with the animals and the birds around your area, you don't have to go back into the wilderness to get that wild bald eagle shot necessarily right away. Work your way up to that. Practice first. Invest in yourself first. That's one of my biggest messages throughout this podcast is work on your skills as an artist, as a photographer first. And then the rest will come to you. And that's where you'll get that basis of, okay, now I want, I need this lens now because you're starting to get a little more into it. You're getting a little more serious about it. And especially if you're starting to sell your pictures to anyone or else you're taking them professionally and someone's like, hey, go out and get a picture of these guys here. So, because the upgrades will cost you. You can go out and get a body of a camera for 500 bucks you can get a decent lens for up to a thousand. But then if you're looking for the really good ones, you're going to be spending thousands of dollars for those sort of things. So just start off with something, a 300 millimeter, the one I'm currently using, I have a Nikon D5300. It's a really good middle range camera, but it's not really professional level. And it, I just have the kit lens. And every time I look into the telephoto lenses, it's always, oh God, I don't have $3,000 of disposable income to throw at a piece of glass right? just for taking photos. But one day, maybe I've done some paid work so far. So if I really want to take it to the next level, that's when I'll take it up to getting more of those things. 
but you always go down to the waterfront or somewhere and you see these people with their huge telescopic lenses. I I looked at one of those this past winter and I was regretting it. Sorry, we had a bit of a lag there. Oh, oh no, go for it. (laughs) No, I was saying I I was looking at some of those lenses and it was a nightmare to even look at it. Yeah, and even there's the ones that are sold by the companies like Nikon and all those, but there's also some pretty good off-brand aftermarket type lenses. Read, Do a lot of research into what you're going to get first, especially when you're making an investment like that. You, and even look at the pictures people have gotten from those because typically you can have an all right body of a camera, but once you want to take step it up, it's all about the glass that comes with it. And so invest more on lenses than the camera itself for the most part. So, but other things other than that, that'll help you get nice and close, get a nice clean, crisp image. It'll all depend on the aperture, which is how open that little pin, it can go a little pinpoint or else it can be the size of the lens itself. It's how much light the lens lets in. So that's another thing to look at too. And the motors, there's autofocus motors and there's some autofocuses that are better than others. Some that are slower and a little sketchier and other things like there's ISO in the camera, which is kind of a synthetic light but that tend that so you can do more night shots. But then, as people have seen, your photo can turn out a little more grainy with what mm. is called noise. So you get this nice picture, but at the same time, it's not clean and crisp. And that's what you're looking for when you're taking bird photos. You want something which will just nice, clean lines. You don't want it to be blurry at all and all that. So, yeah. And then, especially depending on what kind of photography you're doing, or if you're trying to catch a bird mid flight. You want to have a high shutter speed, which means it'll just quickly snap that picture instead of a long exposures per se. But I've seen some people end up with some pretty cool artistic differences when they catch some birds on a in a on the water, just kind of floating around, and they end up blurry. So you sometimes get your happy accidents that way. But for the most part, you want something with a good shutter speed and something with a good aperture, which can either make it nicely in focus where your bird up front is nicely focused and then the background is nice and soft and you get that bokeh in the background, which makes it all look all blurred in the background. So, and then even if you're catching them mid-flight or taking off, you can get a sh- set your camera to a shutter burst speed where you get like 10 photos at once instead of just taking shot, shot, shot like a machine gun sort of thing so that's where you see a lot of sports photographers catching the moment you don't know exactly which frame is going to be the best one and then you go through and pick afterwards so and then there's things like tripods typically you wouldn't use that as much but if you want it to be less shake handheld especially when you zoom in with a telephoto lens you can tend to get a lot more shake on your photos right right but something even like a monopod would be good because you're not typically tripods are good for long exposures or else you can just get there quick have something to steady yourself and then just keep going so it's something that's nice to have and if you already have it it's no big deal so 
yeah you're looking for that detail trying to get something with the high shutter speed while still letting a lot of light in because sometimes you go with too high a shutter speed and it just goes and it's too dark it's underexposed so you got to keep out stuff like that there's you could go on for hours about this sort of thing about equipment and how to use it to its fullest so yeah for sure so, after equipment there's places to photograph birds like i was saying before if you're just getting started and you like caleb said even finding a falcon trainer something like that someone in the falconry mm -hmm. you can go to them take your photos work on that or else even just your chickadees in your yard yep you can get cardinals that are around your yard any songbirds or anything small birds that hang around year round around your area are a good place to start or even a zoo if you can go to yep. the zoo and any birds they have on an exhibit you can go to your conservation area like we were talking about before a Town park parks. Yeah. a waterfront so those are always good places to get your start so and then and and if you get more serious about it or else you do a lot of backcountry tripping then you have your camera there anyway bring your telephoto lens and you're good to go and then that's where you can get birds in their kind of their real element because it really helps give you a better picture with a better story if it's not say standing on a sidewalk or standing on the edge of a bench right you, right. you have a you have a garbage pink hand in the background <laughs> someone walking by if you want like a bald eagle with its big nest and chilling up in a big old cedar tree then that's where you kind of rather get than a, those two rather than a pigeon with a, rather than a pigeon with a french fry sticking out of its beak <laughs> exactly so that's where you start to get the ooh kind of shots yeah. like even in a canoe or a kayak i got when i was out in the broken group islands off the west coast of vancouver island i was in a kayak i had a dry bag on the top of my kayak and i had my camera in there just in case any seals or whales came up beside me or else i saw a bald eagle fly into the trees and then it just perched up there and i just sat there but the problem was i was bobbing in these four foot swells right. while holding a camera <laughs> trying to keep up so i was able to get some decent photos but it's just always always have your camera ready is one of the tips i've always had go in there get a feel for the area be in the moment at first but just have your camera by your side just in case a lifetime moment pops up and you see an eagle or a hawk flying with a snake in its talons or something or if you see some cool little mating ritual going on or some nesting mother feeding her little babies and you want to get a shot so yeah those are some good places to look at to hone in your skills but yeah so explore the area have your camera ready tread lightly don't walk in don't be having these big loud conversations and walking through like you own the place nice and slow walk like a fox like nikki said pay attention to the bird language around you are they alarming already do they sense your presence and if you get one in your sights go nice and slow but don't stop right away you want to have nice smooth movement if you go 
big jilty quick movements that's what might spook them and catch their attention so there's a lot just leave no trace have no trace as you move pretty much wear monotone colors as much as you can don't wear big bright orange jackets that they're gonna obviously see within the first two seconds so be quiet don't look them in the eye like nikki said just kind of look off to the side or just kind of slowly walk with your head down and slowly look up or even just have your camera ready from afar and slowly walk that's what i do a lot is i'll have my camera up against my face ready and i'll take one slow step at a time and make my way towards it so yeah just move like the wind be water my friend <laughs> do your thing and don't get in the way and sometimes i just like to get a sit spot once i've walked around and found a good place where there's a lot of bird activity i'll just sit there and wait and then sometimes it'll just come to you the more quiet you are the more that life can go on without you being an intruder there you it might... takes 20 minutes yeah takes 20 minutes after you've disturbed the birds for them to go back to their baseline at least mm -hmm. exactly you might hear those alarms at first and then slowly they start going okay coast is clear but yeah 20 minutes is a good standard for that as long as you're not making noise while you're sitting there you don't bring your bluetooth mp3 speaker there so mm. nice and quiet oh there's one more um don't play bird calls yeah it trips them up mm -hmm. a lot of those calls are territorial calls not just everybody thinks they're just mating calls birds are not doing mating calls after they're they're bred after there's mm -hmm. eggs in the nest that's territorial calls that they're that you're making and when you play those calls they're going to get very confused because suddenly you're in mm -hmm. their turf um I even have dialed back on making calls and doing calls, except for, of course, goose calls and duck calls that I'm hunting. But like uh, 27, 2018, spring of 2018, um, my very, very good friend Elise and my, go my good friend Matt Buyaki, we were out at the camp and it was nighttime. And there's a nesting pair of barred owls every year across the road from the camp. And we heard them, who cooks, who cooks for you all? So I responded back, they flitted, uh, one of them flitted over onto our side of the road to see where that call came from. And they barged right into a new pair of owls that were in the area. And because I made a call, they got into a giant scrap. Like it sounded like monkeys up in the trees, screaming at each other, fighting, thrashing. The next day we found a bunch of feathers on the ground and a few of them had blood on them. And I felt horrible that I started this whole altercation all because I decided to make a, a territory call right in the middle of their nesting time. Yeah, it's, I always wonder too, with the frequency of what your speaker's giving off, if birds can hear that differently or if they just mm -hmm. hear it all the same, especially with stuff like when we do, when dogs can hear you, they can hear you so much better so they can hear when you're bullshitting and they're like, that's not a real one. It's not <laughs> at the same yep. frequency and tone that we are. So yeah, it's, yeah, you want to blend in. Don't, that's part of leaving no trace is not disturbing them <clears throat> or overwhelming them. So yeah, 
And then even while walking towards a bird, don't walk in direct lines, kind of walk in a zigzaggy pattern. Don't make it look like you're heading right towards them like a predator stalking or about to pounce on them. Pretend to eat some grass. There you it go. It actually works. <laughs> That's my snack on the trail anyway. I just like a nice <laughs> grazing while I'm there. I like to get myself some fresh grass from the grass. So once you've got your place, you found your bird, you want to think about factors like quality of light. Is it a bright, sunny day where everything's getting blown out and overexposed? Sometimes you won't get the best there, but you might get some nice dramatic shadows. Or even on days of soft light, you might not get those shadows, but it might be a more even, softer light sort of mm -hmm. thing. So, and then think about your composition. Think about things like the rules of thirds. I find for a lot of bird photography, it's fine to have your bird dead center like you're doing a portrait, but even sometimes having it more like a mixture between a bird and a landscape shot, having it off to one side or the bottom, something like that. So it's not just smack dab in your center, let your eye wander around the scene. So composition, rule of thirds. You can either get a nice in action shot where they're just soaring through the air, wings spread, or else they can be up in their tree on a nest or eating something. If you get a bald eagle eating a salmon fresh out of the river, or else you could have it where you're just zoomed straight up into the face of that animal and can see its eyes. And that's a big thing is you wanna focus on the closest eye to you. You want that to be nice and sharp, well exposed, especially if you're just using an automatic setting on it. So it's, yeah, do that. Pay attention to your background. Like we said, you wanna have like a nice dramatic background, not too, not distracting though. You don't wanna have, like, if you're just doing it for fun, then get the power lines in there, get that garbage can in there. But <laughs> if you're taking it a little more seriously then really think about the setting. I like to think about how I would draw it. If I was to paint this setting, how I'd want everything laid out how it would look its best. So that's always something I keep in the back of my mind. And then, like we said, with bird knowledge, understanding their calls, their language, it's always important. Have knowledge of your gear so you know how to use it when you're ready because sometimes something catches you off guard and then you don't get it because you were like, oh, how does this work again? Oh crap, I forgot to turn that on or change this setting. Mm -hmm. So there's some more advanced tips that you can really look into so to understand the settings of your camera, as well as understanding the triangle between shutter, aperture, and ISO. So yeah, but a lot of it basically boils down to patience, perseverance, practice, and passion. That's always a big thing with anything. Just practice it. Take care of it. The passion will fuel you to get through it. So yeah, that's sort of thing. And think about the weather as well. Sometimes you might be able to get a really good dramatic shot if it's raining or snowing out. So yeah, add your personal flair or vision to it. Don't always go by the rules that people tell you about. Make that picture your own. Get See what you want to see and how you want to display it to the world. That's the artistic side of it. So yeah. Let's see if there's anything else. And even changing your eye level. 
Sometimes you might get straight down your stomach. There's birds eating seed off the ground. That'll give you a different perspective rather than looking on it from your basic eye level that you normally look at things mm -hmm. and can create a really good picture of just the animal from the feet up sort of thing. So yeah, and fill the frame as much as you can. Try to get as close as you can. It doesn't really help if you just have this little dot in the corner of your screen. So yeah. 90% 90, 90 of my photos. Mm-hmm. So yeah, <laughs> it'll come. Yep. <laughs> but so just to recap on all this stuff, yeah, have a fast shutter speed, preferably to catch it frozen rather than having the wings all blurry, but the face perfect. Have your aperture set right. Let in the right amount of light. It'll allow you to really differentiate your depth of focus. So, and then if you want a tripod or a monopod, so yeah, if you're just catching something, like even just at the park, catching ducks is a good way I've found to get started on it. And then sure. focus on the nearest eye, choose your background carefully, be patient, wait for the bird to act natural. That's the biggest thing about sitting and waiting that 20 minutes. You don't want a bird that's just like, uh -huh, looking all cracked out. So yeah, and then even using hunting skills, like using a blind, hiding yourself. Caleb, you've told me about how well a geese, well, how well a goose can see. Yeah. So they can catch you coming from a while away. So mm -hmm. it's it's funny. Sometimes like turkeys, I swear, have to have like telescopic vision because they seem to be able to just spot you. You move once yeah. and they just like zoom in and wait. And then you blink again and they're gone. There's yeah. there's some really cool techniques that I've seen, like uh, Rob Lonbury, uh, who lives down towards uh, Grafton area, uh, Coburg area, actually. He's a, a bird watcher friend of mine who's got like all the gear when it comes down to really good shots. And he'll go all out with like the best equipment, waterproof gear to go over his camera so he can be out in the worst weather and get the perfect shots of like a duck with raindrops coming off its bill. That's the mm -hmm. kind of guy he is. And I'm sitting there like, wow, that's, that's something definitely to like strive for, but I don't know if I have the, the, the wherewithal to even figure that stuff out and get to that level of, of photography. I'm still, I'm still just excited that I got a good Osprey photo last spring. <laughs> I get like one really good photo every year. And that's like the photo that I show off everywhere. And that's because that's the one good one I got. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And I'm just, I'm, I'm going through your Instagram right now. I don't, I don't, I don't, and for those folks who are wondering like, yeah, Ryan's got some good insights here, but how much does he know? You don't understand how good these photos are. Like at Rye underscore the adventure guy, this guy's got some amazing photos. I'm going back to like 2019, 2018 with some of your photos of cardinals, barred owls, chickadees. You have this beautiful photo of a Tom Turkey that I just am absolutely enamored by at how clean and crisp that shot is. Like that's magazine worthy, in my opinion. Yeah, I'm, I'm still working on it. I'm still getting there. I still wanna get those nice closer up shots. Like the ones you said, where you can see that water droplet on yeah. the beak or something like that. But I've got lucky sometimes with some Cardinals coming up close to me and just wondering what I'm doing. They're like, do you have some food for me? Where is my <laughs> seed right now? I need you to feed me. So it's always, it's an ongoing thing. And that's where 
I eventually want to get to one of those bigger lenses that I can really get those nice detailed up close shots without having the crop too much. Cause that's a big thing sure. is just the after production of your photography using something like Lightroom. Well, so there's a lot of free apps out there that you can download. Like one I use is Snapseed. So, mm. so yeah, it's a ongoing thing and something that I hope to keep on improving on. So it makes me curious. I want to try it. I think I postulated this idea to you a couple of weeks back when we were chatting. Um, those I've got a spotting scope that I use for hunting, that big, big green vortex spotting scope. And I can see cows on the other side of Rice Lake eating grass. Like that's how quality it is. Yeah. And I, I want, really wonder if I can get one of those attachment parts for this Huawei phone that I can attach my phone to that and turn that into my zoom lens. Cause that's, that would be a pretty nice lens. I think for some long distance shots, just that yeah. big. And it's only cost me 900 bucks compared to like 10 grand. I would rather just buy another clip on thing for the phone <laughs> personally yeah. they even sell nice little starter mm -hmm. lenses for camera phones they can kind of clip onto your phone camera and just have it pinched right on the end of it and people take lunar shots that way they take bird shots that way so no it's joke. a nice cheap alternative if you already have a good cell phone mm. and with where the technology has already been going to them taking a little more time into putting a better camera in there for you so yeah. yeah just do your research and totally find out what's out there and then be resourceful like caleb's doing thinking about his spotting scope because that's pretty much a lens already so yeah. it's doing the exact same thing and getting a nice clear picture of it so yeah i'm excited I, now yeah it's fun. Yay birds. Yay photos. And now I'll let you guys get into the nitty gritty, the good stuff that everyone's been waiting for. So I don't know, man. Like that's that right there <laughs> was some great insights, man. That was some great information that I'm I'm I already like quickly I had my phone up just taking looking at all your photos and I was like, I should open my notes and start jotting some of this down. <laughs> and I've got a few You know you can listen to this again. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> Shocking, right? Yeah, yeah I'm, I, I am. I'm genuinely enamored by your, your Instagram with how beautiful these shots are of these birds. Like the, the mallard, this bufflehead one is just the, where you got like the, what's it called? Where it's almost like an oil slick effect on their feathers. Yeah. That was That's when Raddick and I were out near Campbellford last year yeah, canoeing. Yeah. And that was from the canoe. So beautiful. I was able to get beautiful nice bird. close up close shot but that's what i found photography has given me and other motivation sometimes when i wouldn't feel like going out to the woods like oh, i just want to go out and take some shots so it's always a good excuse to get out there and find something else especially if you're camping and you tend to get a little border on the campsite and then it gives you that little extra push to hey let's go out and go for a nature hike and see what we can find and mm -hmm. it gives you different perspectives of the woods and allows people to see what i do and what we do as professionals working in the woods so totally yeah it's it's a fun hobby i picked up over the last few years well you're getting you're doing really good at it man like this is these are some phenomenal photos and i've always liked your photos but i never actually sat back and started scrolling through your whole feed of all your photos I'm like holy crap this guy's even better than i thought 
I already thought you were one of the better photographers I know, but holy crap, these, and I'm not trying to, you're, you're flattering me right now. I'm not trying to flatter <laughs> you by any means. This is, this is absolutely some of the best bird photos I've seen in a long time from anyone I know, at least that's not like a professional photographer for Nat Geo or something. Yeah. I like to undersell and over deliver. So. <laughs> uh, it's okay. I, <laughs> and then people can be like, okay, this is better than okay. Yeah. But humility always works in your favor. Yeah. But yeah, uh, that, one day, those... that's where I want to get to is the National Geographic level. Hell yeah. Things. Maybe we should just do a bird book and take all your photos for that. Let's do I'll it. All right. I volunteer as tribute. <laughs> okay. Bushcraft bird book. Yeah. <laughs> and you can add Birds the, by Nikki. Birds by Nikki. <laughs> and then Caleb can add in the Nishinaabe Moen translations yeah, yeah, and everything and have idea. one out there. That'd be kind of we fun. can do that in partnership with Keith. So sign there up you. for the Canadian Bushcraft Patreon to <laughs> receive a bird book. <laughs> oh, make those promises to our patrons. <laughs> we can barely deliver to our patrons half the time. <laughs> <laughs> And they're just like, we want more content. It's like, I can't even do that. I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, now the bird book has to happen. So I'm going to run out there and start getting photos of every bird I can find. So. Well, what are some the... of these birds that we can find? Exactly. Perfect segue. Perfect segue. <laughs> Mickey, would you like to talk about some birds? I would love to talk about birds. <laughs> so I have a really difficult time because like I said, no, actually, I did not say this yet. I love birds. I love birds more than Caleb. Bullshit. <laughs> bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. <laughs> I saw him staring at me and I'm I, calling I, you I knew I was right getting now. in trouble. I'm I calling know. you on that. I right know. Now. I already conceded this argument because Caleb said he was crane clan. And then I was how like, can you I cannot can you argue concede? with that. How can you concede when you keep arguing it? <laughs> I'm just saying the underlying message here is that I love birds more than Caleb. So first bullshit. bullshit. <laughs> You can't, you're not going to get, I'm not, I'm not letting this podcast go any further until you concede and don't say more than Caleb afterwards. Caleb loves birds more than me. And I love birds so much that I'm willing to surrender in order to talk about how awesome they are. There we go. Okay. You may continue. <laughs> okay. So I want to talk about a few birds, which sucks. Cause I want to talk about all birds because this is like my favorite two months coming up April, May. They're like my favorite seasons for seeing birds and listening to them and watching them and kissing them. And one of the birds I want to talk about is like the most famous bird that we have here in at least Southern Ontario. Uh, so I know there's listeners probably from all over the world, but I'm going to talk about birds that you'll see in Southern Ontario and maybe other places in North America. So the first one is the red-winged blackbird. Now I've got to say the Latin, Agleus. <laughs> Agaleus phoenicus. I don't know why I become Italian when I'm saying these well, words. Well, you are Italian. Okay. Yeah, I know. But okay. it is from. It's an ancient Greek word. <laughs> then that has close, nothing to, close enough. No, no, those aren't close at all. <laughs> those aren't close at all. Ancient Greek is not even close to Italian. Fine, I can see it again. <laughs> so the genus, which is the Agaleus, um, is derived from ancient Greek. It means belonging to a flock and phoenicus is latin for deep red so the deep red bird that belongs to a flock so they are usually the first birds that come back at least here 
So the earliest I've ever seen a red-winged blackbird come back is February 28th. That was in Toronto. This year, the date that I saw them or heard one, which still counts, was uh, March 14th. So they are the most abundant living land bird in North America. Really? Um, yeah. <laughs> so they are a species of least concern. And they can number, their flocks can number in excess of a million birds per flock. No shit. Yeah. And I would the, never imagine that. <laughs> the full number of breeding pairs across North America and Central America may exceed 250 million in peak years. <laughs> what? Yep. Okay, let's backtrack on this real quick. Let's process this. So Canada geese... We talked about this on the waterfowl episode back in the fall are like seven and a point seven million Canada geese. And we're like, there's so many Canada geese. Yeah. Oh my God. And there's how many breeding pairs? 250 million in peak years, it says. In peak years. So in a peak year, that means that there are 500 million birds. Because yeah. if it's a breeding pair, so it's 250 million times. Yeah. 500 million. 500 million birds. Of one species. Yeah. And it's not a starling. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I wish I could yep. do the Owen Wilson wow now. Wow. Wow. <laughs> That's the best I can do. <laughs> and like I said before, it is the most well-studied bird in the whole entire world. I mean, there when are... there's that many of them, yeah, I guess yeah. it makes sense. There are also 24 subspecies. What? Yep. I did not know that till today. I didn't know that till today. So <laughs> the reason why they come back to Southern Ontario so early is because they're a short distance migrant. So they go up to 800 miles. I don't know what that is in kilometers. <laughs> I didn't even Google bother. Right yeah. 2.2 kilometers per mile yeah. or something like that. Look it up your, yourself. <laughs> yeah. So they go up to 800 miles south to the southern United States, northern Mexico. And their call, if you haven't pictured a red-winged blackbird yet, you'll know them by their call. I'm going to try my best to do this call. <laughs> First off, it's 1,287 and a half kilometers. Okay. Thank you. There you go. Now do your ridiculous calls. Okay. So this is their uh, song. I, I don't know if you meant to make it sound like that, but that was amazing. Yeah. So it's like the classic, classic red winged blackbird sound that you hear from marches, marshes, not marches. They've also got this like clicking. They go like this. Mm -hmm. And then they've got this high pitched whistle which is like an alarm. I can't even do it. It's like a beep. It's a whistle though. <laughs> I can't do it. No, can't do it. It sounds like my bird. <laughs> I think we should do a patrons thing where we have for Patreon, where we have you just do a bunch of bird impressions. Yes. <laughs> I'm happy, happy to. We'll record it sometime next week. We'll do a little patron bonus that we'll make like a little, little podcast bonus for them where and all the patrons can listen to They can, can request any yes. bird. Yes. Any yeah. bird. Any, any bird. bird. I want an emu specifically would... <laughs> from Southwestern Australia. I would like a northern pot too. 
Oh God. Yeah, they're very scary. That sounds like, sound like a cat bringing up a hairball. Right? Anyway, I've got so many stories about Northern Patoos, but I'm going to continue talking about red-winged blackbirds. <laughs> so the males and females, they are sexually dimorphic. So that means they appear differently. Uh, the male is all black. They have a red shoulder and yellow wing bar, often referred to as epaulettes, which is, I think, a French word for shoulder pads. Yep. Yeah. And the female looks like a sparrow, except bigger. She's very nondescript, brown, stripy, white, streaky. And the males are 50% larger than the females. And the young birds, the juveniles, they actually resemble the females. Interesting. Yeah. So unlike most species of birds, um, the juveniles, they won't actually grow their full plumage in their first year of life. Right. But a lot of other birds will do that. So they're mm -hmm. like ready to mate once they get their plumage and go. But these guys have a little bit of a slower uh, plumage growing. And it's really cool. I found out that due to their diet, there's a uh, carotenoids there's two carotenoids gonna like butcher this pronunciation astaxanthin and canthaxanthin <laughs> they make up the red and yellow pigments in their in their shoulders mm -hmm. and there's lutein and zeaxanthin and there's also they found that there's melanins in the red patches so when they like stopped giving they did a study where they like stopped giving the birds these foods that had these carotenoids in them and the shoulder pads went brown hmm. instead of like colorless fair <laughs> yeah and these patches are like absolutely vital in defense of the territory of red-winged blackbirds so the larger the spot, the more effective they are at chasing away their rivals and more successful in, in contests with other males. Interesting. Yeah, they did an experiment where they like stained it and they said that 64% of males lost their territories. Really? Yeah. But it's really cool because here's the kicker. So the female red-winged blackbird does not use variability in the size of and color of the male wing spots when choosing a mate so that's like counter to the classic role of that pigmentation in those ornamental feathers of the birds yeah, yeah. Um, used to attract females so it has nothing to do with the females and more is just a sign of aggressiveness and social status against rival males um yeah and it's just like a really important indicator of status in the pop in the red-winged blackbird populations Hmm. Yeah. And so what's what's their usual diet? Oh gosh. Like I've heard some people say they're ex exclusively insectivores, and I've heard other people say they're fairly omnivorous. You know, I, I did food for every other bird except, except for, this, for one. this one. I was like, I don't need to go into the foods. They eat stuff with carotenoids. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm guessing it's they're eating seeds and fruits. Mm. They're blackbirds. And they're probably also eating insects. Like, where yeah. else are you going to get carotenoids? Do you get carotenoids from insects? I don't even know. I believe some comes from plants and some comes from insects. So right. it could be a mix of both. Yeah. So 
obviously, like a lot of other female birds, the females are brown and drab <laughs> to hide from their predators. And these, these birds, the male red wing or the red winged blackbirds as a species are polygonous, not polygamous, polygonous, which basically means that the males mate with many other females and the females mate with one. Hmm. So they like to, the, the male uh, red winged blackbirds like to sleep around. And it's really cool. If you watch red winged blackbirds a lot, you'll notice that the, the males will often be perched in like cattails or shrubs just a little bit higher up. And the females will be on the ground. And the males actually are standing up there and they're keeping an eye on the females. They're keeping an eye on their nests. They're very, very aggressive, very territorial. Um, and they like to nest in, col in loose colonies um, around like marshes and wetlands and swamps. Right. And they really favor cattails for building their nests. Like it's very common you'll find um, red-winged blackbird nests in uh, cattail marshes. And the females actually are responsible for making the nest. Um, but again, back to the territory thing, <laughs> I have literally seen red-winged blackbirds beat up hawks. I have seen red-winged blackbirds dive bomb people. I've been dive bombed by a red-winged blackbird several times. <laughs> um, so yeah, when I think of red-winged blackbirds, I just think of very territorial, uh, the males especially just like look out for their, their families mm -hmm. in a sense. Yeah. And they're really, it's really smart. They're like evolution to like often perch and build nests above water because it totally um, lowers the amount of predators that they have. Because who's going to go into a swamp and, sure. and try to eat a red-winged blackbird, <laughs> lest drown? <laughs> and the only like interspecies territorial territorialism that is common is with the marsh wren. Really? Yeah. Okay, I have this really great quote from Wikipedia. I was reading about um, <laughs> crop losses and red-winged blackbirds. <laughs> okay, so in the 1970s, losses to sunflower and corn crops caused by blackbirds in the Dakotas exceeded $3 million annually. So investigations conducted between 1968 and 1979 revealed that blackbirds, notably the red-winged blackbirds and the common grackle, annually destroyed less than 1% of corn crops in Ohio, which is a large number. Like I'm saying less than 1%, but that's a large number. Mm -hmm. Amounting to a loss between four and $6 million in 1979. Holy shit. So... As early as 1667, Massachusetts Bay settlers had enacted laws to reduce the blackbird populations and mitigate the damage to the corn. So there was a law provided that each single man in a town must kill six of those birds. And as a punishment for not doing so, he could not marry until he had compiled with the aforementioned design. So at the beginning of the 20th century, in some places when the reeds dried up, these circumstances were used to kill these birds in the following way. 
A crew approached a roost in silence, hidden in the darkness of night, and simultaneously lit the reeds at various points, which were quickly enveloped by a single great flame. This caused, caused a huge tumult among the red-winged blackbirds, which, lit by fire, were shot down in large numbers as they hovered midair and screamed all over the place. This is an actual quote. Sometimes straw was used for the same purpose, which was previously scattered near reeds and alder bushes in which they gathered to rest, the burning of which caused great consternation among the birds. The gang returned the next day to collect the hunted prey. And then they would sell the prey. They would sell the dead red-winged blackbirds in the market after they were massacred and sold because they had put a bunch of weight on due to the corn and, and the crops that they were eating. So they were served at as delicious snacks. Hmm. Yeah. Is that where like "Bye Bye Blackbird" and all that kind of all those songs may have come from, and those by those nursery rhymes and stuff Maybe. about blackbirds? <laughs> Maybe that makes sense. I wonder about that. That makes a lot of sense. And there's like a lot of people would probably be turned uh, turned off by the idea of eating a bird like that. These are songbirds that are clearly her eating herbivorous. They're eating grain. This is not like eating a raccoon or like I've eaten dove, I've eaten pigeon, I've eaten, it's called squab. It's, it's quite delicious because they're mostly a grain eater and it's, it's a very good meal. I could see red wing blackbird tasting mm -hmm. quite good. I have, I myself have not eaten it yet, but hearing this, I'm kind of curious now. I, I, I really like red wing blackbirds. I, I don't know if I could get around in my own brain shooting one out of the sky just to taste it. Only when they're dive bombing you and getting territorial. Maybe if a male's dive bombing me and harassing me. <laughs> I've only been like, I've I've had one attempt to dive bomb me and I swatted him with my hat and I, I missed him for the most part. He got away. But that was after watching that same that same like group of red winged blackbirds harass a crow and a fox simultaneously. And then just happened to have one like suddenly spying me. I'm like, don't even think about it. And he came flying at me. I'm like, don't even do this. And he was flying. I just took my hat off and swatted at him. He flew back. I think he realized I was a little bit more out of his league <laughs> than he thought. <laughs> Bruh, don't. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I'm like, don't do this, man. Don't do this to me. I don't want to hit you. You're pretty. And I like your songs. I, like the camp is surrounded by redwing blackbirds this time of year, all the way mm -hmm. until, till fall, really. We have redwing blackbirds just going nonstop all around us. It's absolutely beautiful time of year to be out i love that sound though their their call do it again do it again <laughs> so terrible <laughs> i've got to actually i have some songs that i wanted to share too i gotta bring that up um i'll jump into the next bird then just sick Oh, you bring it up. I'm gonna see if I can get it to play. That's what, that's what Nikki's been trying to do an impression of. Call Nikki, call. <laughs> <laughs> call back, Nikki. Call back. 
spot on. I'm 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 I'm, I'm picturing Chris Dutton and Martin Heidinga and Brad Poole, all of our supporters on Patreon who are listening. They're like, are they seriously just sitting there making Nikki <laughs> sing to bird calls? It's like, yeah. yes, that's exactly what we're doing. Yeah, it's my favorite pastime. <laughs> like, I'll do impressions of, of celebrities and then Nikki will do bird calls back at me. Yeah. She does impressions of birds. I do impressions of celebrities. I actually, outside of this podcast, I don't speak English to Caleb. I just... She just caws at me like a crow. Yeah. And bobs her head up and down like a like a like a very angry parrot. <laughs> okay, next bird. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a bird you will see. I okay. I've been doing this nerdy thing where I track bird um, arrival dates for years and years. And so these are usually the next birds, if not at the same time as red-winged blackbirds that come back. At least where I was in Toronto. Here, I have no idea because last year it was a pandemic and I stayed inside most of the time and I didn't pay attention to the birds because it was a very rough time for everybody. Um, so I have no idea um, when these birds will come back this year, but it is the song sparrow. And the Latin name of the song sparrow is Melospisa Melodia, which you could probably guess what that means, Ryan. I don't know, the bird that sings. Yeah, it means melody. <laughs> okay, melody. Okay, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Melodia. Melodia. Um, so the migration of the song sparrows. They're also short-range migrators like the red-winged blackbirds, but they can they often will stay. There's kind of like a little bit of an over overlap in southern Ontario where there are ranges year-round. Um, so that's probably why they are the first ones back also um so they're all they're partially or completely migratory depending on and this is why depends um if the ground is covered in snow because they are ground feeders and they have complete dependence on seeds and weeds for food in the winter so they're gonna go where the snow isn't so that might be just south of toronto um in like some weird climate vortex in new york or that could be in toronto we've had years in toronto where there's literally been no snow in the past few years pretty much just gets snow in january and february and then yeah. by march it's all gone so yeah and the way they look um they're referred to in the birding community if you're not part of the birding community as lbjs little brown jobs um, because they are brown and streaky. I don't think there's any more of a description I could give you about red wing, or not red wing blackbirds, but song sparrows. They're brown. They're nondescript. They're streaky brown. There's about a billion other birds that look like them. But they have such a beautiful call. <laughs> and they do this call. And a lot of people have like have made mnemonics for calls, like such as cheeseburger or here, sweetie, for uh, the chickadees, but the the mnemonic for the song sparrow is mates, 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 put on your tea, kettle, kettle, <laughs> which is my favorite. <laughs> it's so good to use with kids. I have a kid that I said that to once, and for years he always pointed out the song sparrows, and he's like, Nikki, it's the mates, mates, mates birds, and I was like, ha, got him. Um, and they often people have said that the songs. Uh, resembles the opening four notes of Ludwig van Beethoven's Symphony Symphony Number no. Five. Ooh. So I'm going to play the sound of a song sparrow. I hope they got writing credits on that 
made some royalties <laughs> for after real i gave royalties to whiskey jacks for my song whiskey jack okay here's the song girl <laughs> uncanny yet again <laughs> yeah so that's what they're called sounds like i'm i'm so sad caleb missed that he was walked away for a minute <laughs> so the caleb you just missed uh my impression of a song sparrow which was really good oh good Lord. you'll have to go back and listen in this podcast no do it now <laughs> Okay. Chip, 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 chip. <laughs> Moving on. That was atrocious. <laughs> it's hard, man. You have dishonored the song all sparrows? the song sparrows and your ancestors and my ancestors. <laughs> Ryan's I'll, ancestors are cool with it, though. I'll do them better. Yeah. I think my ancestors say that she needs to write a song based off that. (laughs) A little scatting interlude in the middle of it, and you're good to go. Oh my gosh, you're giving me too many ideas. (laughs) Please don't do that. I'm going to. Uh, Studies have shown that female song sparrows are attracted to males that sing a larger repertoire of songs, and they're much more successful in holding their territories when they have a larger repertoire of songs and reproducing. Um, they nest in low shrubbery, and you see them on the edges of fields, in farms, in grassy shrubbery areas. They perch really low. You will a never shrubbery. see them in a tree, really. Like, I've never seen a song sparrow perched in a tree. They've always been in, like, the dogwoods or the willows. Um, I've seen them on the lower branches of some spruce and stuff like that, but just not even five feet off the ground. Yeah. Those yeah. perch up. Um they depend on increasing day length so the longer the sun is out um, to signal breeding behavior and this is true for a lot of birds but um, it is shown that the warmer temperatures and the food supply can trigger the their breeding to start months earlier or weeks earlier than expected Hmm. Um, and they've even like up to 14 days earlier when they have access to feeders some fun facts about the song sparrows during the dawn and twilight on a spring morning the male song sparrows will sing a song every eight seconds and may average 2300 songs during an entire day also the song sparrow is the most paratus i don't know how to say this the song sparrow is Parasitized by the brown-headed cowbird more often than any other bird in North America. So if you don't know what the brown-headed cowbird is, it is a parasitic bird that like lays eggs in other birds' nests. And then those birds will raise those babies. I've got a meme yeah. I'll send you on that one. Great. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, their weight can fluctuate. 20% in 24 hours. And that's the mic drop on song sparrows. Love them. Keep a lookout for them. Keep a lookout for that. <laughs> I feel like every time I did that, it was different. It was because it's all true, but it's all terrible. Yeah. <laughs> Some birds are just hard to mimic. Or 
Abe's going to get feisty with me on this podcast. Or you just suck at it. Whatever. Baltimore Orioles are the next word I'm going to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) And the Latin name is Icterus galbula. So the name Icterus galbula. Galbula. Icterus galbula. Dracula. Dracula Uh, bird. uh, uh. (laughs) So obviously the Baltimore Oriole received its resemblance from the male's like coloring of the orange of, to the coat of arms of Lord Baltimore. That's where it's got its name from. Uh-huh. Um, so there has been observations of interbreeding between the Baltimore Oriole and the Western Bullocks Oriole. Um, so they were classified as a single species called the Northern Oriole only from 1973 to 1995. And apparently now they're declassified. They've what? split up again. <laughs> So now you still have the Baltimore Oriole and the Bullock's Oriole. Uh, I was so used (laughs) to having just the Northern Oriole. Interesting. So Oriole means, it comes from the Latin word Oriolus, which means golden. And Icterus is from the ancient Greek Icteros, which means a yellow bird, golden yellow bird. Um, And if, if there was like folklore around if you see one of these birds, you can cure jaundice, which um, don't take my medical advice. But if you have jaundice, try it at least. <laughs> I mean, okay, so they arrive in Southern Ontario in May and leave in August. They head down to Southern Mexico, Central America, Northern parts of Southern America. Um, and their call sounds like a robin. And what does that sound like, Nikki? A robin or a Baltimore Oriole? Baltimore Oriole. It is, it's like, (laughs) I'm going to get the call. Yeah, that's better. Um, there's like five birds that all sound like that. There's the rose-breasted grosbeak, the scarlet tanager, the robin, the Baltimore oriole, and the indigo bunting. They all like have a very similar sound. So they can be very hard to di- differentiate. So as far as what they look like, um, they're orange. They have white bars on the wings. Um, the male is orange on the underparts of the shoulder patch and the rump. And sometimes they can appear like more yellow, yellow orange, or sometimes like full bright orange, orange. And all the rest of the plumage is black on the males. The female is yellow brown and on the upper parts and has darker wings and dull orange yellow on the breast and belly. And again, the juvenile looks very similar to the female. And they love leafy deciduous trees. They love parks. They love open woodlands. They love wetlands. And very, very rarely will you find them in deep forests. And they're usually solitary outside of mating season. Um, They're considered monogamous, although there have been evidence that said that they have, um, they like swaying a little bit. (laughs) Up here, keeping the fishbowl, yeah. and yeah, yeah. I mean, why not? Right, as long as they're both mutually okay with it, 
Exactly. YOLO. <laughs> it's really cute, though. They have this, like, um, cool mating show they put on for the females. So they will sing, and they'll chatter, and they'll hop from perch to perch in front of the females. They'll bow, bowing their wings, like, like they can't see me. <laughs> I love how you just figured that out. <laughs> I was I was bowing my wings. Uh, so they'll bow their wings, like droop them a bit and fan their tail. And then they'll hop from branch to branch. And then the female plays coy and they're like, mm, I'm not interested. Oh, yes, I'm interested. No, I'm not interested. Yes, I'm interested. And they might do a little wing quiver back in response. And then they'll lean forward and fan their tail and flutter. It's like a cute, they're like flirting. They're like, <laughs> I'm so excited. It's like, they're like little, little uh, preschoolers, like having a crash, you know? <laughs> and then finally the nest, it's really cool. I have found more Baltimore Oriole nests than any other nests I've ever seen in my life. Really? Um, it's built by the female. And it's this like tightly woven pouch. It is so intricate. They're well known for their nests. And it like literally, I don't even want to say, can I say what it looks what? like? Go ahead. It looks like a nut sack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can see that. It looks like a nut. It's just like this sack. I guess I could have just said sack. <laughs> <laughs> but you had to go with nuts. You had to go with nuts. It's a family friendly show, but yeah, whatever. If families aren't teaching their children um, anatomy, anatomy, um, then I don't know what's up. <laughs> so it looks like so the you're saying that this looks like the creamiest cut. <laughs> An yes, Oriole I, nest looks like the creamiest cut. Precisely, right. precisely. Good to know. <laughs> and I've only ever found their nests in willows and cottonwoods, which is really cool because they really prefer willows. They really prefer cottonwoods. They like those droopy trees with like those soft branches and that's probably why i found a lot of the nests because they just fall break so easily because willows and cottonwoods yeah, have such weak sense. wood um and fun fact if you want to attract baltimore orioles into your yard forget the bird seed they don't eat bird seed they eat bugs and fruit so they should you should offer sugar water grape jelly or oranges <laughs> and it's so cool when they eat the oranges because they're orange and the oranges are orange <laughs> oh man it's the cute i love birds so much <clears throat> i've seen the oranges a lot just a nice half <laughs> orange yeah mm -hmm. i've seen the grape jelly a few times now it works yeah and i usually notice them right around the time the yellow warblers come back uh, they're like pretty close to these song sparrows, I find. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay. Two more birds. Two more to go? Two more to go. I shortened right. my list. Yeah. Oh, right. You did. Well, did. How long was your list originally? It was, had like 10 birds. <laughs> and I was like, this is going to be so long. We don't need it this long. But if you're, not, if you're listening to this podcast, you're obviously interested in birds. That's so the true. next or, bird, or they're just really on a long drive. And they're like, I just need one person to talk to me. <laughs> and they're so disappointed because there's three people ranting. Yeah. And they're like, well, who's this person making these guttural sounds? I'm just trying understand. to drive my truck, you know, do my job as a delivery guy. And I'm hearing this. <laughs> I'm going off the fucking road. 
Pardon my language, folks. The next bird, Ryan would probably love to see one of these because they are bright blue. And who doesn't want Ooh. to photograph bright blue birds? Like they just, Ooh. literally these birds are favored because they're blue. Like everybody else is like, I don't give a shit about anything else that these birds do, but they're blue. So, no wow. So the indigo bunting, Passerina cyania, obviously cyan comes from cyan which is the most brilliant blue i saw this meme where you can like you stare at this like dot for like 40 seconds and then you stare at the wall and then you can see true cyan and it was like the most magical thing and i do this when i'm sad i just go look at true cyan and this is amazing this is <laughs> um it's in the cardinal family it also has sexual dimorphism males vibrant blue and females brown, a drab brown. Mm -hmm. um, the cardinal family has beautiful birds. They do. So they come here in southern Ontario, April and May, and then they leave August to September. Um, and their range is sort of like southern Ontario, the east coast of the states, the Midwest, and then they will fly south to Central America for the winter. Okay. Here's a mind-blowing fact. Let's go. The indigo buntings often migrate during the night and they use the stars to navigate. <laughs> I love it. So they don't rely on individual stars or like the brightness of the stars, but they use them as clues. So they will use the in both the fall migration and the spring migration. And it was often thought that the indigo bunting had an internal clock, so it would be able to compensate for the movement of the stars. Um, mm. But it says that their temporal com compensation for stellar motion is not part of their migratory methods. But they said that in captivity, since the birds cannot migrate, they experience disorientation in April and May and September and October if they cannot see the stars from their enclosures. Hmm. Wild. Yeah. I, I, I just find that so beautiful. Um, <laughs> as far as the call goes, you're probably not going to identify it from its call because it's very non-distinct. It sounds like a bird. It sounds like a bird that someone would um, play I'm sorry. In, a, I'm sorry. in a movie. We're talking about bird calls. You're like, it's going to sound like a bird. It sounds like <laughs> a regular, I don't know, like what everybody thinks a bird sounds like a canary, I guess, you know? It just has a sing song. It's the tweety bird sort of thing. Yeah. We're going by cartoons. Oh, I love this. <laughs> um, where to find them? I rarely see them. I've seen like four indigo buntings in my entire life. Um, and this, I, I saw that its annual survival rate is 0 0.585. What? Yeah. Say that again. Their annual survival rate is 0.585%. Like that's how likely it is that they will survive? That's how many Yes. Die. Okay, I thought you meant like 99 point whatever die off every that's, year. That's what I first heard. I'm like, wait, what? No, that's- How a, are they yeah, still around? <laughs> that's what I'm saying. What? Yeah. That they- 99% of them die. Oh, wait. 
I don't Okay. I don't know if it's 0 0.585 out of 10 or if it's 0 0.585%. Oh, no, it's out of 10. It's out of 10. It's out of 10. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Let's say 99 out of 100 die every year. <laughs> like, this species is not supposed to survive. <laughs> it's still very low. <laughs> um, they like brushy forest edges, open deciduous woods, second growth woodlands and farmlands. Um, they are monogamous, but not always faithful. Ooh. <laughs> Scandalous. And the nest building and incubation are done solely by the females. Um, they wrap their nests in spider webs on the outside. Mm -hmm. Wild. They're like Morticia Adams. It's in, wild. In <laughs> and then they feed solely on insects during the summer and then seeds during the winter. Okay. So just like the blue jays, their blue feathers are not blue. They are black. So we were talking about this on the last bird podcast episode. It's the diffraction of light that gives it the blue appearance when we see them. So that's why their coloring can range dark to light. Um, so pretty. Caleb's showing me a picture of one. I just want it as a pet. Don't do that. <laughs> and one last fun fact about indigo buntings is that a lot of birds are referred to as a flock, but when indigo buntings are traveling together, they are referred to as a decoration, a mural, or a sacrifice. That went dark. <laughs> <laughs> like everything, uh, what I'm getting out of this is the indigo bunting is the Morticia Adams aesthetic. They're like, oh, yeah. We're, we look blue, but we're actually black. We yeah. love to dress our nests up in spider webs. You can call us a sacrifice. Exactly. What is going on here? We only fly at night. Yeah. <laughs> this is just this they're is like, shape shifting bats. They're the mall goths of the bird yeah, kingdom. I love them. They're so cool. Oh okay. I'm probably gonna cry at this last one because Why? of how beautiful. <laughs> Don't do okay. this. Don't do this. The last bird. That You're not allowed to cry on the podcast. You save <laughs> that for when the you save that for the specials when we get paid extra. Okay. Cool. Don't cry. Uh, up your um, donation status to the Patreon to fifty dollars per month, and I'll cry on film <laughs> for you. <laughs> this is sounding darker and darker. As it <laughs> okay. The last bird is the rose-breasted grosbeak. Oh my gosh, chef's kiss. The chef's kiss of birds. One of my favorite birds. I'm already getting upset. Um, why, because, why are you getting upset? Just wait, your, just if, wait, just I don't, wait. I don't like the things that make me cry, just to clarify. No, I love it. No, it's like gonna make me cry joy. Okay, so the genus name Phytacus is from ancient Greek for shy or to flee and Ludovicanius is from the new latin and refers to louisiana a shy louisiana <laughs> um so they have uh, the males actually have black head wings back and tail a white belly with a bright rose red patch on its chest and that's where their name rose-breasted grosbeak comes from the wings have two white patches and rose red linings the female has dark gray brown upper parts darker on the wings and tail and a buff stripe along their head and a black streaked white underpart. And the center of the belly have like a buff 
tinge. The wing linings are yellow and on the upper wing are two white patches. So they migrate from Southern Canada on the east all the way down to Central America and, and um, Mexico. Okay, this is what made me cry earlier. Rose-breasted grosbeaks are known for their singing. Actually, there's one bird book that says, it sounds like a robin that took singing lessons. <laughs> and they are known for singing on moonlit nights, sometimes all night. And they often, it, it won't be loud. Like they'll just sing softly throughout the night. So sweet. Calm down. <laughs> I know. Um, where to find them? So they like open deciduous woods and you'll find them here. Just listen for the sweet sounds. <laughs> um, <laughs> really fun fact about their mating is that they were the only one of 70 migratory songbird species in the Eastern United States studied shown in males to have produced sperm while still south of their breeding location. So they're like roaring and ready to go when they arrive. They're like, I'm ready to mate. Um, they arrive earlier than the females. They're really excited to be here. Yeah. And then the, the, the second thing that made me cry, the male oh rose-breasted grosbeak shares incubation duties with the female and is known to sing while sitting on the eggs. Nikki, stop. It's so sweet. It sings to its babies. <laughs> How cute is that? That's so cute. So cute. It's finest. I love them. Yeah, and that's a wrap. I just want to mention other songbirds to look out for. Eastern bluebirds, gotta love them. Um, mm -hmm. Scarlet tanagers, they're like cardinals without a crest and like black on their wings. Uh, thrushes, who have the wildest flipping calls. Do me a favor right now. Make the call right now. <laughs> so hard to recreate it's what so hard the hell to recreate. was that so i'm gonna play it that um, was the call i thought you were just having a seizure okay are they wild? part of the, are they they're part are of they, the cardinal family right they're thrush thrushes oh wait thrushes right i my brain's fried <laughs> no worries um and then I just want to touch on quickly warblers. Most common warbler you're going to see is the yellow warblers. It goes sweet, sweet. Oh, so sweet. It's so cute. Um, it's so cute. And oh, I was going to do stuff about warblers. And then I was like, no, no warblers. Because you know what? For a beginner birder, A, you're not going to see the warblers. You're just going to hear them. You're not going to know which one's calling because they all, it's, they're, it's so complex. I haven't even learned all warbler calls and I love birds and have been looking at birds for a long time. Um, they're perched high up in trees. So you can't see them. They, they like perching and most of them just like come right through. So if you have binoculars, it's a good idea to try to spot the warblers, try to find where those calls are coming from. That's the best way I've found warblers is to hear the call and then look for the bird. Um, but they're so cool. There's so many different kinds of warblers. There's like hundreds of warblers hundreds of warblers i don't even know all the names of them yeah that's true there's tons of subspecies 
that's crazy or species anyway. there's tons of species of warblers yeah i thought i'd just share the ones that are bright and that you're probably going to see the easy ones this is alert. This is like the intro to bird watching in the springtime. We don't want to muddy the water too much for you. I still and can't believe that rosebreast and grosbeaks sing to their babies. Like, at least you're not crying about it right now. It's so sweet. <laughs> you might want to mute yourself because I can see that you're on the verge of tears. <laughs> there. Okay. So uh, with all the songbirds category kind of moved to the side now covered, uh, we're going to talk about some of the bigger birds and some of the more shoreline aquatic birds. These are some of the easiest birds to spot because they're right out in the open, right out in the water, or they're big. Uh, the most common ones that you're going to see are your ducks, your geese, your wading birds, which are going to be things like herons, bitterns, which are actually really difficult to see but you can actually hear them, but not in the same way that other birds. And that's the one that I really want to dive into is the, the American, uh, the, the lesser and the, uh, and the greater bitterns. Uh, with that, we also have our ducks and our geese and our swans and our cranes and our herons and all these other beautiful birds. And so I want to talk more about the locations to look for them in. First and foremost, shoreline. Anywhere that there's a lake, anywhere that there's a river that, con that uh, connects to a lake or calms down and has a big open area, any places that there's bays, inlets, uh, marshes, wetlands, this is where you're going to see some of these bigger birds. You're going to see these larger birds and these ducks and Virginia rails and all that. My favorite place is right along a northern shoreline of a lake, preferably on a little bay where there, it's getting a lot of sun all day long and therefore the ice is melting out and you get these pockets of open water that the ducks and the geese and all these other dabbling birds all converge on. They all want to get in there. You're going to see terns in there. You're going to see gulls in there, though they're going to come in a little later, probably mid-May. Uh, you're going to start seeing more gulls and terns. But uh, you're going to see your dabblers. You're going to see your, 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 your mallards, your teals. You're going to see your uh, golden eyes. You're going to see a lot of different kinds of ducks in there. But you're also going to see a lot of swans. You're going to see our two native swans and our one in non-native or in my opinion invasive swan those are the trumpeter swans the tundra swans and the mute swans mute swans are not from here they're from eurasia and they're easiest to tell which one you're looking at by their wings on the water not when they're flying when they're sitting on the water if you see this big arching wing coming right up out of the water like a hump like a big hump coming out of the water or a peak that's a mute swan. If you see a bird that looks like a swan, but its wings are real low to the water, that's either a trumpeter or a tundra swan. And to, to figure out the difference between a trumpeter swan and a tundra swan is really hard to explain on a podcast. Really hard. They are really hard to explain. Now, the number one way to tell a tundra swan from a trumpeter is the trumpeter swan has a coal black beak and some tundra swans will have a coal black beak with a yellow nasal area. So that's going to be a bright yellow to orange nasal area, kind of like a stripe between their white head and their black beak. And that's the only way that I've easily been able to identify from a distance. The other way is that tundra swans have a much rounder looking head. It's a much more like a, like a big softball with a beak sticking out, whereas a, a trumpeter swan has a much more egg-shaped head or much more oblong head. 
these are your larger water birds that you're going to see out on the lakes and on the bays and the rivers, your swans. Beyond that, you're going to have your Canada geese. You're going to have potentially speckle-bellied goose. They do come through Ontario on really rare occasions. And you're going to have your Canada geese and your snow geese. Then you have your ducks. The number one that you're going to see this time of year is probably your buffleheads. Buffleheads are some of the easiest ones to see from a distance, buffalehead mergansers. Uh, hooded mergansers as well because they're bright white with black and they're out on the water so again it's easy to spot them compared to something like a mallard or a teal who might kind of blend in with the waves with all those kinds of birds we're also looking at those larger birds we're going to start seeing things like bitterns cranes herons the herons haven't arrived where i am yet probably another two weeks and we're going to start seeing them the one category that I don't want to dive too much into is the raptors because it really does fluctuate. Uh, this past February, we saw five different bald, uh, bald eagles come through. We have not seen a golden eagle yet, but they seem to be coming through in the next couple of days around here. We should probably see a golden eagle. We usually see the goldies in the fall around here. They don't usually show up around here in the springtime or they're not as visible or, or apparent in the springtime. Uh, raptors like hawks often kind of stay around, especially the red-tailed hawks. They seem to stay all year, all winter long. The bit of the heron, uh, sorry, the merlins and the kestrels, it kind of fluctuates. Uh, they seem to be some of the first raptors to disappear one year and other years they seem to hang around well into the winter. Um, I have not seen a kestrel this spring yet, and I, but I have seen a merlin already. So they are all over the place and you're going to see them often along fence rows along telephone wires and out in open fields are those smaller raptors and the larger raptors. Uh, a lot of people are excited because the turkey vultures just showed up this past week. And uh, yeah, that's your raptors. Uh, just keep an eye out for big open areas and you're going to see them pretty frequently this time of year. They're looking out in the open fields looking for prey or they're looking for kills that are already apparent or already present. When it comes down to the bittern, they're a really weird bird, part of that shoreline wading birds. I don't see them very often. I think I've seen them 10 or 15 times in my entire life have I actually seen a bittern, but I hear them all spring long. And that's because they have this really weird sound. I can't, I'm not even gonna try and emulate. I'm not gonna try and force Nikki to make the call. I'm not gonna make anybody make the call because it's not actually through vocal cords and normal bird vocalization. The, the bittern actually doesn't use regular vocalization that we're used to with most birds and most animals. They use what's called infrasound. It's actually more felt than heard. You're hearing it more in your ear bone than your ear drum. And when you're walking through those ponds, you're walking through those marshes and those big wetlands this time of year, especially after the marsh just empties of ice and just thaws out, you're going to start hearing this like clunk, clunk, but it's felt more than heard. It's not an actual glunk, glunk, but it's the sensation of those sounds. Bloom, bloom, bloom. <laughs> I literally just told the listener that we're not going to be doing that, but we're doing it. Um, it's really hard to record it because it's infrasound. You have to use a pretty good microphone to record those calls. And most of the time that I've gone on like YouTube or Cornell or anything like that to try and get good bittern calls it doesn't sound right compared to what you hear out in the wilderness. Um, they are a very strange bird because they also are very well camouflaged. Both the male and the female are heavily camouflaged for a cattail or phragmite or reed grass kind of ecosystem. So much so that the females of the lesser bitterns will sit right on top of their nest. And when a predator walks up on the nest, the female will throw her head straight up in the air like she's looking at the sky 
and wave her body back and forth because it makes her look like she's a cattail. That's wild. And that's extremely effective, apparently, because the bitterns are doing very well. They're a species of least concern, habitat loss, with the advent of Ducks Unlimited and the growth of wetlands across Ontario in the last 20 years, bitter numbers are on the rise. They're doing quite well. And again, I've only seen them 10 or 15 times in my entire life. And that's like since I was a child and saw one when I was like seven years old with my uncle. To this day, I've only seen them 10 or 15 times, but they're all around my camp. And that's because they don't come out of those cattails very often. You might see them on the edge of the road once in a rare while, and that's pretty much every time I've seen a bittern was when they're either perched in a tree over the uh, over their nesting area or they're on the edge of the road looking for something to eat. Uh, in the Anishinaabe Moan language and Ojibwe language, they're actually called like the little heron. Mushkasi, the smaller heron, the small heron. And the bitterns are very, very uh, unique birds to us. Some people even call them like children of the thunderbird because that weird sound they make, that glunking sound that you feel more than hear. Beyond that, we're looking at cranes and herons and other shoreline style and wading birds. We've talked about ducks and geese already. And we've talked, if you want to know a lot more about ducks and geese and like how to find them and where to look for them, go back to the waterfowl episode. It is very much waterfowl hunting to, uh, uh, reliant. Like it's a very heavy episode on hunting. But when we look at those skills of hunting waterfowl, it's the exact same skills you would use as a bird watcher who's looking for those birds, who's looking for waterfowl. I see more birds when I'm out duck hunting. I see more species of migratory birds when I'm hunting than any other time of the year because I'm in the wetland, I'm in their areas, I'm in their flight paths, and I'm there early, 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 and I'm there before the morning chorus begins. So I've kind of snuck in and rested myself in amongst them, and then they start to sing and wake up, and I'm already there. So I get to see a lot of the birds. My, uh, much of my bird watching is done when I'm duck hunting because I'm only after two or three species of bird there. And there's like 50 different species of bird in those wetlands at that time of year. But for the springtime, I want to focus a lot more on those shoreline birds, those grebes, those uh, rails. The Virginia rail is pretty common where I am here. They are very quiet and, again, hard to see birds. They often stay. I've only seen them twice in my entire life. Um, and, again, they're all through the wetlands around my, uh, my camp is the, the rail family. And they are very much uh, a, a very common part of our ecology but they are not easily seen which is very common with a lot of these uh, these wading birds they can easily disappear and disguise themselves in amongst the reeds and uh there's probably only, the only other bird better than them would be the would be again the bittern but the rail is really good at disappearing into the bush it's really good at disappearing in the bush so Beyond that, uh, we can look at things like I want to really end off with cranes because they're probably one of my favorite birds. Nikki already mentioned they're part of my uh, I'm part of the crane clan and uh, they've been it's one of the one of the few animals I have tattooed on my body is a crane because I love them so much. And they are only in the last 15 years really getting good numbers in this part of Ontario. If you go out towards Lake Superior, Lake Huron, Wisconsin, Manitoulin Island, Things, places like that in the great in the heavier parts of the Great Lakes, the Central Great Lakes region, the Sandhill Crane numbers are absurd, absolutely absurd. But here in Central Ontario, they're not as common. We see flocks of maybe fifteen, whereas over in uh, Wisconsin, when I drove through there back in 2014, I watched a, her a 
freaking herd. They were not even a flock. They were a herd of 250 sandhill cranes in a farmer's field. And the reason I call them a herd is because they looked like deer. The first moment we saw them, we thought they were just a massive herd of deer until the deer started to fly away. And then we were like, holy shit, pull out our binoculars. Like, those are cranes. What the hell? And we put two and two together and we were in the Wisconsin flock, uh, which is a massive flock, a flock of 250 cranes. And then there's massive numbers. If you go up to Manitoulin Island, you're driving through Manitoulin Island in mid-August, you'll see all the farm fields and almost every single farm field has a pair of cranes in it. And that's how it is here in Hiawatha, where I live on Rice Lake. Uh, we hear the cranes all spring and all through the summer and then into the fall, we'll hear them again. And you see them mostly in the farm fields near the lake is where you're gonna see those cranes. Herons, they're gonna be up in their rookery and then they're gonna be usually solo out in marshes, out in lakes, out on rivers, looking for fish and, and mollusks and uh, invertebrates and frogs and other amphibians and critters to eat. Uh, herons really are a dinosaur in my opinion. They, I've had them fly beside my car and it feels like that scene from Jurassic Park. And you're just looking over like, da, na, 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 as they're flying. And they're the length of the car, it feels like. They look like a dinosaur. It's majestic. Terrifying is what I would say. <laughs> as much as I love them, and again, another bird, one of the few animals I have on my body tattooed is a, is a, is a great blue heron. They are beautiful birds and I adore them. But when they fly near me, I am startled. I had a sandhill cr- my one sandhill crane story that i always forget about until i'm thinking about just stories in general we were doing one of our week-long skills courses at the camp i think this was the last one we did because of everything else uh since i yeah it was the 2018 nope i'm wrong it was the 2017 week-long skills course and we had just two students that year and on day like it was a full fire ban because of how dry it was so so dry that year that the students asked like, Hey, do you mind instead of like doing evening classes, can we just go down to the lake and swim and like get this dust off our bodies? I was like, you know what? I love that idea. I would love to go out to the lake and just swim for the evening. And since we we're going to be doing orienteering anyways, we were going to, I was going to wait until the stars come out and basically do night navigation with them. So we're all just chilling on the, on the shore. We're chilling in the lake and we get out to like where we go from Herkimer Point, it's very shallow water. Like it's waist deep until you get out like 150 yards from the shore. And then it starts getting deep up to your neck. This was the perfect spot to just stand in the water and just enjoy being cool to the touch finally compared to how hot it had been that whole week. And there wasn't a biting insects on our faces. There was no exhaustive heat drying our skin out. It was, it was absolutely beautiful. And then dusk came and I'm like, okay, we're going to wait until the stars come out, guys. Right. And they're like, yep, yep. And we just look like our heads just look like rocks out on the water from anybody driving by on their ATVs or on their trucks. We probably just look like a couple of rocks out in the water. And then out of nowhere, a sandhill crane tried to land on me. Are you kidding? I have uh, Alex Williams and Aaron Snyder can vouch for me on this. Oh my God. Tried to land on my head. Uh, did it realize you were a human and then take off nope i dove i was like nope not (laughs) happening i went under i saw the i saw the feet and i heard the call like oh no and i went (laughs) under the water and i heard it like almost hit the water and then get up and flap away and then it landed over for because i guess it was already in the attempt to land it didn't have the energy to go right back up again so it tried to land on something else like 20 yards from us and it was still open water so we see this sandal 
this poor sandhill crane hit the water try to swim at the same time try to flap out of the water and take off again and yeah that was the closest i've ever been to a crane and i'm pretty happy that's the closest i've ever been because those talons on those things are a lot more do they have talons i can't even picture what their feet birds have talons all birds have right right that makes sense (laughs) but it's like i'll pull it up right now but it's webbed right no 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 they're a wading bird they're not a they're not a swimming bird and they're not even much of a wader. They're often just usually in farm fields and such. Oh my gosh. That's that their so foot right sense. there. Oh yeah. Just look yeah. at those claws. Like that, those are true claws right there. Yeah. And that, they look those, like dinosaurs. Yeah. Two of those are oh coming down God. to my scalp. They were about to land on my scalp <laughs> and dig in and try to find a purchase. And I was going to get pecked in the face. You said it made a call above you? Yeah. Like what it, did that sound like? Sound like a sandhill crane. Can you do it? You're the one that does calls, dude. I want to hear yours, Anhel Craig. You go ahead and do it. Go ahead. No, I'm not very good at it. Oh, are you now? As you have told me. <laughs> Let's hear it, Nikki. <sighs> it's not horrible. It's better than the ones you've done before. <laughs> that was pretty close. Wow. Rare. Wow. <laughs> wow. I I can never do the Owen Wilson one. I'm not breathy enough. It's all in the back of the nose. Right. So I wanted to kind of end with Sandhill Cranes just because again, they're my favorite bird. They're my uh clan. So that usually makes them a little bit more of a priority to me, but they're also just, they're such a dinosaur of an animal. They're such a strange being Uh, the closest we'll get to dinosaurs in this part of the world, at least. And uh, I love them for that. I just love those birds. And they're just such a, they like great blue herons to me are terrifying. Cranes are majestic. Like they just are majestic. They're mating dance, everything they do, everything about them. And that's, that's a cool thing about those. They have a mating dance, just like ostriches or emus or other large stork-like birds that aren't storks. They actually have a mating dance where the males fluff up their wings and they move around the females and try to show off their their skills on the dance floor, their, their happy feet. Did you talk about woodcocks at all? Not at all. <gasps> I never said I was going to. I know. I know, but I went to the bathroom, so I didn't know. <laughs> I was looking for a sandhill crane dancing video to show you if you've never seen this before it's such a cool thing and for those folks out there you're not going to see this so i'm you might as well just go and watch it on youtube later or go and look for cranes and watch them do their mating dance i've only seen them do this a few handful of times let's see let's see oh my gosh oh my gosh that's so cute that is the cutest thing little pirouettes look at him they're like ballerinas but they're like ballerinas (laughs) oh my god If I saw that, it would make my life. I've only seen that a handful of times, and I watch them every single year. 
and they're always like 500 yards away and I can never get a good yeah. shot with my camera on them. But this year I got permission from the property owner where they frequent to go in and set up a brush blind on the edge of the farm field. So I'm, I'm hoping to get in like within a hundred yards of them and get my big zoom lens and get a bunch of shots of them doing their mating dances and stuff. They are probably my favorite bird to watch uh, all year round is the cranes. They're just absolutely my favorite. Some of my favorite moments with taking people out on the land have been with cranes. Uh, a few years back, I think 2015, uh, we had a fall class with students and two of them had never really been in the woods at night before. And they were a married couple. They were dating at the time. They got married, I think, a year later and uh, became really good friends of mine. And we heard those calls in the middle of the night, like around 10 o'clock, all around us. Like one was above us. And then there was like two or three off to the left, two or three off to the right. We heard these calls and they were kind of getting nervous and like crowding into each other by the fire. Like, And the one's like, so what is that? I was like, oh, I'm not going to tell you what that is, but I can tell you right now it's nothing harmful, but I want you to see it in person before I tell you what it is. And the next day we were doing land nav up on a hill beside the camp, the ridge on Ridgetop. And while we're doing the navigation, I heard the calls again. I said, hey, turn and look at where our fire is. And they look up and there's 30 sandhill cranes playing in the thermal of our fire. Aww. And they're like, those are the things that were making those calls? I'm like, yeah, those are sandhill cranes. And then another 15 came in from the Northwest and joined them. And now there's 45 of them playing for like half an hour in the thermal. And then they all just drifted off south and went home down for the, uh, for, for the winter. So I, I just have a lot of beautiful, fun memories with cranes. So I always like to end my bird talks with them because they're just such an important part of my life. But yeah, there's bitterns. And when it comes down to, and, and, your, all your shoreline birds and all your big birds and such, the, the number one place to look is along wet areas. It, it, sometimes it could just be a frozen marsh. It could sometimes feel like just a big puddle in a field. And you'll see birds. You're going to see a lot of these birds, a lot of these dabbling ducks, a lot of these lake ducks or diver ducks. You're going to see the swans, the geese. You're going to see the cranes. You're going to see the herons. You're going to see the ospreys. You're going to see all these amazing birds coming in. And you just have to learn to kind of read the land and, hey, maybe you missed them last year, but if they went to that spot last year, maybe they're going to come back to that same spot this year and you can prepare for it and you can set up for it and get a pretty good shot without causing any undue grief on the birds themselves or stress on the birds. <clears throat> so with all of that being said, was there anything else we want to touch on before we end this episode? Should we, uh, this episode is shorter than we expected. Not uh, by much. Sh should we touch on the morality chart <laughs> you mean the alignment chart um yeah moral alignment chart i think we'll save that maybe for the fall migration episode the fall birds, or the summer birds maybe we should do a summer bird episode we should do like a okay. seasonal bird episode every time where would you put sandhill cranes i would put them at lawful good okay personally yeah. there's nothing really violent about them they're mostly a grain eater uh they mostly are just this large bird that dances for their for their lover and are very good nurturing parents and stuff so they just kind of feel like they align mostly to lawful good they're like the captain america of the birds in my opinion mm. whereas like a great blue heron is would be like a chaotic good they're like they're they're not evil but at the same time they're not going to follow the same rules to get to the point that they need to be at right they're much more uh willing to swallow a muskrat hole kind of thing <laughs> you've seen that video right yes <laughs> great like oh and an alligator 
There was yeah. one that swallowed an alligator. Yeah. Great blue herons are the it's true wild. dinosaur. Great blue herons are genuine dinosaurs. I've it's seen wild. pelicans do that, but I haven't seen herons do that. Herons are terrifying. They are a yeah. they are a dinosaur with a spear for a mouth. It's incredible. It's an incredible animal. So I'd put. They can break like, your sternum. Yep, they can kick hard too. Like they can kick hard. I've I've watched one kick something. And that was impressive. It was impressive how much damage it did to that, to that thing. Um, so yeah, I would say crane would be lawful good. I'm still trying to figure out the neutral chaotic, the chaotic neutral, of the bird world. I, What's the the description of chaotic neutral again? Like truly impulsive, and don't have any alignment or any like qualms with what they do. They it, basically, if you're thinking red wing like blackbird. Hmm. I wouldn't look at the red winged blackbird as the Deadpool of the bird world. Like Deadpool is like your usual description of a chaotic neutral character, or Jack Jack Sparrow, right, would be considered a chaotic neutral character. So, what would like what bird would be that? I have no idea. Um, Deadpool of birds. Like I personally, whiskey Jack. Mm, No. I He's just gonna say no to anything. I say. Like I don't like whiskey jacks are playful and friendly, and that's they, true. They're they're not that they're not that neutral. They don't they're not evil. But they're also good. kind of evil. Mm. They're very tricky. They're very big tricksters. If we're going with that direction, I would say blue jay. Like their Ojibwe name literally means they're at odds with everyone. Right. And they're like the number one trickster in most stories, of any mm-hmm. bird stories. Like blue jays, I've witnessed blue jays convince an osprey that that's a female osprey. Right. And make that osprey do stupid stunts to nearly break its neck to impress that female when there is no female osprey there. Right. Like that's a that's a chaotic neutral. They're doing that for shits and giggles. They're not doing that because they want the osprey to die. They're doing it to see if the osprey right. is dumb enough. Like that's very chaotic neutral to me. Whiskey Jack, I would put as like more like a chaotic good or a yeah, I would say Whiskey Jack would be closer to Chaotic Good. Chaotic Good. I, I like the sounds of Chaotic Good for Whiskey Jack. Yeah. Whereas, like, I'm trying to think of the birds we talked about today. A rose-breasted grosbeak? That would just be, like, that. Would, I, would lean, I would lean them towards, like, neutral good. Or not neutral good. That's not a thing. Um, <laughs> lawful good. Lawful good. Yeah, yeah. They sing. <laughs> <laughs> Don't cry, Nikki. <laughs> don't cry um if i was to i'm trying to think of like who would be chaotic evil of, out, out, out of, of the, the birds, ones we said today all the birds we said today okay red wing blackbird maybe they're literally out to get everything i don't know they're just defending their young that's true but some but are they really though <laughs> like it makes you think like i'm not anywhere near your damn territory get away from me <laughs> like maybe the mute swan because they're aggressive as hell they're violent as hell and they're an invasive species right maybe i'd put them as like chaotic evil yeah mute swans because those guys are vicious like have you been bit by a swan before it hurts like a son of a bitch. it hurts a lot it's it's not a permanent injury but god damn it's a pinch from hell yeah they can draw blood oh yeah i've been beat up by a swan once in my childhood and i've never looked back there's I posted a photo of my sister that was in the newspaper from where we grew up on her birthday, which is a few days ago. And it's a picture of her, her best friend, Hillary, 
our nanny and me and we're all except for our nanny hiding on a on a park bench trying to hide behind her as these swans and and geese are surrounding us and my sister is like right up on the backrest of the of the of the bench holding on to our nanny for dear life whereas me and hillary are just standing like what do we do now i'll send you the photo i'll send you the photo later because it's absolutely <laughs> hilarious but it's just like ever since that's like i thought of swans as just being like evil my entire childhood right. And then I found out, no, that was a mute swan. The trumpeters are just very protective of their nest. They're not out to get you. I'm like, oh, okay. Did we decide that uh, bald eagles were chaotic or no, um, lawful evil last time? I think so. Because mm-hmm. they're assholes. Mm-hmm. They, are, they are genuine assholes. But they're, they're doing it mostly out of just instinct. So it's like chaotic evil, yeah. Mm-hmm. Or no lawful evil, yeah, lawful evil. They're doing it because they think they need to. Yeah, there's the yeah. photo. I just found. Sorry, I just found the photo of my sister and me and my and Hillary. And I cropped it in. I'll send you the original. <laughs> we also did bring up cowbirds at one point, so oh, they can be yeah. chaotic evil. Oh yeah, they could. They could. They could definitely. Like, there's no true reason why they need to lay their eggs in other birds' nests. They just don't want to do the work. Right? (laughs) Which sounds like a very chaotic thing to be. Yeah. I don't want to. I don't want to raise this. Are you kidding me? (laughs) There you go. I see that to the podcast chat. Yeah, I would say I would definitely say cowbirds would be chaotic evil. Yeah. And then chaotic good would be. What was chaotic good again? So lawful good was sandhill cranes. Mm-hmm. Chaotic neutral is blue jays. Chaotic evil is cowbirds. So we get that kind of diagonal mm-hmm. crossed. What are the other six categories? We have lawful good, lawful evil, chaotic lawful, or neutral uh, lawful neutral. <laughs> falafel. Falafel. <laughs> <laughs> Full awful. Yeah. Anyways, um, yeah. There's a lot. We should do this with the podcast with the with the patients. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll 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 make an entire uh, list. Wait, hang like, on. What? I have the pitch. I have the pitch. Uh, become a patron on Patreon for Canadian Bushcraft if you'd like to vote for which birds fall on which scale of the moral alignment chart. Thank you very much. This is a sponsored message from Nikki Satira. And in exchange, you'll get Nikki to do an entire session of bird impressions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And crying. And crying. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> this is becoming so dark. It's so dark. It escalated so quickly. Okay. Right. I think we're done. I think, <laughs> I think we're, we're done. I think we're emotionally done. I think we're physically done. Spiritually I think this done. podcast is done. The spiritual, I was spiritually done an hour ago. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this episode's gone on long enough, I think. All right, folks. I want to thank everybody for tuning in. All of our patrons, of course, like again, uh, Paul McCartney, Matt, uh, Martin Hedinga, Chris Dutton, everybody else that's been a supporter of ours on Patreon. And of course, I want to thank my special guest, Nikki Satira, our special guest, Nikki Satira, and my co-host, Rye, the Adventure Guy. Thanks to everyone for tuning in. I hope you're all doing well. We'll see you again next week. We're going to be interviewing 
Paul McCarney, not the guy from Wings, Paul McCarney <laughs> from Landscapes and Letters about wildlife, his, his experiences up in the North, why he goes to the North and works in the North, and uh, much more beyond that regarding his life up there. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Take care. Wash your damn hands. <laughs>